Coming up on Tech Nation, how are famous innovators different from the norm? NYU professor Melissa Schilling talks about everyone from Albert Einstein to Steve Jobs and Elon Musk in Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who change the world. Then on Technation Health, Dr. Chris Smith from the startup QSERA in Brisbane, Australia. He tells us how a scientist came face-to-face with the venomous Australian brown snake. It one day may save your life. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Have you ever heard of the famous Ingrid Bergman, Charles Boyer film, Gaslight? Many of you will say, of course, while others will say, huh, who are they? The movie was released in 1944, a black-and-white stunner where the Charles Boyer character attempts to drive the Ingrid Bergman character off-kilter and under his control by having her doubt her perceptions. She tells him that the gaslight, which illuminated houses in London during the period in the film, would get brighter and less bright inexplicably. He told her no, she was imagining things. A series of events were manufactured, and he kept telling her, no, your perceptions are wrong, and she was safe with him. He would tell her one thing, and then claim he said another. Over time, she became used to this, expected that she would be confused by her perceptions, and dependent on him for the truth. That's just part of what made this movie a terrific thriller. But this aspect was so compelling, it became the basis for the popular term we use today, gaslighting. As described in Psychology Today, it's a form of persistent manipulation and brainwashing that causes the victim to doubt her or himself and ultimately lose her or his own sense of perception, identity, and self-worth. But that's not the kicker. The kicker is, it's not only played within personal relationships, it can also be played on entire societies. There are seven stages to a complete gaslighting. And the very first one is lie and exaggerate. Sound familiar? Have you turned on television recently? Who's fake news? Who isn't? Who can say who's telling the truth? Say anything and assert it's true and call anyone else or any other media organization fake. In situations like this, all the other rules of journalism and just being polite takes a back seat. There's name-calling and pejoratives and embarrassing accusations, and it's all presented as simply the truth. Our media diet has been a steady stream of misinformation, exaggerations, misdirections, and more. And when they cannot be denied, the response has been to call them hyperbole. Hyperbole? What's the difference? Well, hyperbole just admitted to exaggerations or misinformations, all right, but the definition says that they're not actually to be taken literally. Oh, so when is it exactly true? and when not. 
there's no flag you hear or read that tells you, oh, this is hyperbole. Left unchallenged, it's presented as true. Say anything and don't note that it's hyperbole, and a whole bunch of people won't ever figure it out. And this is exactly how the mass media has become an unwilling partner to the gaslighting of society. Should we just ignore this? Well, no, because there's more, and we're humans. The next step in gaslighting is repetition, a skill at which all media technology is unsurpassed. Follow this up with escalate when challenged and then wear out the victim. Then form a psychological or emotional dependency on the person who is actually misrepresenting the truth. At this point, the gaslighter gives you false hope and then leads you unsparingly to that last step, dominate and control. Take a look at the movie. It's easy to find online. And then think about where you are personally and where we are as a society. No matter your political inclinations, we've all become victims and we are all wearing out. Another term for this is psychological bullying. And coming back from it will be a long, hard road. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Melissa Schilling, the John Herzog Family Professor of Management and Organization at New York University's Stern School of Business. She's written Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. Then on Tech Nation Health, Dr. Chris Smith from Cusera, a startup in Brisbane, Australia. Their product coagulates blood, and it all started with a chance encounter with the venomous Australian brown snake. Melissa Schilling writes about such famously inventive people as Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, Marie Curie, and Steve Jobs. Each could easily be described as unique, but she settled on the word quirky. You know, it was interesting. Some of the ways in which they are alike each other, they're very different from the rest of us or from what you would think of as a population average. And in some ways I wrestled with this term quirky because, it, you know, to my mind, a quirk could mean to someone something small, like a little tick or an eccentricity, when really some of these things that they have in common are much bigger and deeper than that. They're more like capacities or, you know, capabilities or belief sets. But uh, but in the end, in the talking with my publisher and working it through, we decided that quirky worked. And it does. <laughs> and some, some of the things are definitely very quirky. Like there's there's a couple of details about some innovators that quirky is really the best word for. Well, I think you should share what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. So, for instance, a lot of the innovators, uh, probably half of the innovators wear the same outfit every single day. And, you know, at first you're inclined to think that's just a weird coincidence or it or it has to do with them being lazy about their thinking. But 
the more you study it, it's actually an outcome of another trait, which is it's out, outcome of two traits. The first one being that they all have a little bit of social detachment or a social disconnectedness where they don't feel like the rules that apply to other people apply to them. And that means that social rule of getting dressed each day and having a different outfit and sometimes sometimes the social rule of showering didn't apply to them. So if you release that rule and then you add in a second trait, which is that they were keenly focused on an idealistic goal so that they were working all the time and very focused on that goal to the exclusion of almost everything else, then you really easily see how you end up with someone not changing clothes every day or wearing the same thing every day so they don't have to think about it. Um, The quirkiest trait, though, of all, I'd have to say belongs to Tesla, Nikola Tesla, who was probably the quirkiest of all the innovators I studied. He was a really strange and fascinating and brilliant person. I think of everybody I studied, he's the one that I became most fascinated by. Uh, He had a lot of signs of mania. He didn't sleep very much. He slept about two hours a night when he slept at all. He had strong aversions to anything spherical. So if a woman was wearing pearls, he just couldn't even be near her. He tended to divide the cubic root of his food by three on his plate. And if it couldn't be perfectly divisible by the cube root of three, he wouldn't eat it. So he had a lot of obsessive compulsive tendencies. And he was also a lifelong celibate, except for the fact that he had a long-term relationship with a pigeon that he believed to be his soulmate. (laughs) So I I think that definitely can get filed under the category of quirky. Quirky becomes kind. Becomes a very kind term in some of these instances. (laughs) (laughs) And you did pick up on the one about the clothes and the not showering. In fact, I have a a friend who... uh, finally admitted that his his socks, his pants, his shirt, everything had to always be the same color. <laughs> Interesting. Like, you know, yeah. I, I never, you know, you dress so, you know, he changes it. I'll have to notice if he changes it every day or not. But it's like there's no tan pants and blue shirt. No. Uh-uh. Yeah. So it might be around Monochrome. you if you actually knew. You actually knew what you were looking for. Now let's dive into some of the attributes because while it's it's kind of fun to talk about these, to be a breakthrough innovator, you need some very special characteristics. One yeah. is this extreme belief they can overcome obstacles, and right. uh, it it just it it is astonishing when you look at uh, them taking on challenges that other people just don't believe they can do. Yeah, they often did what other people had said was impossible, and. Uh, You know, this trait, psychologists call this trait self-efficacy, and it's kind of a mouthful. And people sometimes confuse it with the more general notion of confidence, but it's not really the same thing. So confidence is supposed to be a general term, and it could be whether you think you're pretty or whether you're good with the opposite sex or whether you're going to be successful at everything you try or lots of different things can go into confidence. But self-efficacy is very specific to task-related activities. So it's this degree to which you believe you can overcome obstacles to achieve your goals. And the interesting thing about it is that someone could look like they're not particularly confident. Like if you met Marie Curie, you might not have come away feeling like she was a very confident person, yet she had incredibly high self-efficacy. And every single innovator in my set had it. And when you have this intense faith that you can overcome any obstacle to achieve your goals, it completely changes the nature of risk 
because uh, you no longer think of an obstacle as being a signal that you might fail. You just think of an obstacle as being something that you absolutely are going to surmount, and there might even be a bigger dopamine reward after you do surmount it. So it could actually be a little bit exciting to have a challenging problem. So people with really high self-efficacy, they will take on things that other people won't take on, and they'll stick with them a lot longer than other people would stick with them. Even if they get lots of negative feedback or have early failures, they'll, they'll still persist. Well, you know, we eat failure for breakfast here in Silicon Valley, and uh, which often leads us to uh, great success. Another aspect which carries you through these obstacles to ultimate success, sometimes, we always know it doesn't always get there, um, is idealism. They yeah. all seem to have an ideal that they were like, this is what I'm trying to do. Let's talk about some of the ideals of these various people. Yeah, this actually surprised me. It, it didn't surprise me that they had high self-efficacy. I kind of thought that I would end up finding that when I went into this research project. What it did surprise me was how many of them were so keenly focused on some idealistic goal, and for how many of them, it, it definitely was not about money. So almost none of them actually were doing what they were doing for money. They had these goals that were larger than life, and the goals were so important and intrinsically noble that the goals became more important than things like leisure or or their even their reputation or sometimes even their health their family they would be so intensely focused on this this idealistic goal that they could work incredibly hard towards it and kind of neglect everything else uh, and it also provided you know not only focus and motivation but it also provides a form of ego defense so it again contributes to why they're able to persist in the face of failure because if people criticize them or they experience, you know, humiliation along the way, they just feel like that's something to be endured because they're working towards a cause that's important. So most people are familiar with Musk, Elon Musk, and the fact that he's got two main idealistic goals driving him right now. One of them is that we need to get to renewable energy alternatives, which is why we he works on Tesla and Solar City, and also that he believes that there's a high likelihood of some catastrophic failure on Earth, so we need to have a colony on Mars to preserve the human species. These are really important motivating goals for Elon Musk, and a lot of people have heard about those already. Uh, Nikola Tesla was trying to invent free energy because he believed he could relieve mankind of all burdensome toil and that therefore mankind would have more time to spend on creative endeavors. And he also thought uh, if he invented wireless communication, which he ultimately did invent wireless communication, he would obviate war because his view was how could we possibly have wars once we can talk to each other and understand each other. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, I think another one that's pretty interesting to talk about is Marie Curie because she is the innovator. I'd have to say of the set I looked at, she's probably the one that had to overcome the biggest obstacles to be an innovator because in her time, women weren't really welcome in science. And most universities in Europe didn't allow women. And she also came from a family that had uh, been stripped of its wealth during the Polish, during the Russian occupation of Poland. So she didn't have money. And uh, she basically... She became part of the Polish positivism movement. And you have to understand what was happening at that time is that Russia was trying to eliminate Poland. They were trying to erase its history. And part of erasing its history meant that you couldn't teach Polish history or Polish literature. You didn't use Polish in the schools. You, you were, they were basically trying to Russify everything. And Poland initially fought back with military means, but they got trounced and, and just there was no way they could compete with Russia for military scale and power. So they ended up 
coming up with this idea of Polish positivism, where the idea was that you would save Poland through science and education, and that if Polish scientists could achieve great things, this would preserve the identity of Poland. And one of the remarkable things about this movement was that it said every Pole has to be educated, including the women. And that was a big deal at this time, because at that time, a lot of women weren't getting advanced education, but they needed to to be part of this movement. And so Marie Curie became part of this flying university that went around and covertly taught women science and, and Polish history and all these things. So she was going around to schools and churches and homes and secretly meeting to help educate other women. So she was running with a group of women who were some of the bravest, smartest women of her era. And... Uh, Education and science became her ideals, and she always gave away the awards she got. If she got uh, a grant or a big monetary gift, she would give it away to other institutions or to other scholars who she thought would need it. She was never in it for the money. One person who you might think was in it for the money but who wasn't was Steve Jobs. He had a really simple one. He just wanted to change the world. Exactly. You know, people, I think a lot of people misunderstand Steve Jobs, and He's easy to misunderstand because he was a difficult man, and he could be very feisty and wasn't always very nice, but he wasn't about the money either. He really saw—he tells this great story about seeing this poster that lines up how fast and far animals could go uh, and the the caloric needs of that, and he ends up finding that humans are really pathetic. (laughs) I think the condor (laughs) is at the top of the list. Humans were really low on the list, and and he, as he puts it, here was the crown of creation, supposedly, and, and it was a very inefficient and ineffective species. But then somebody had had the Uh, wisdom or impudence to put a human on a bicycle, and that shot a human way up high on a list. So basically putting a human on a bicycle made a human able to go much further and much faster with far fewer calories, and it made us a much more viable competitor in terms of the species. So he saw the computer being the bicycle for your mind. Like He really wanted a computer to be something that would liberate you to think bigger and better and faster and further than you could think on your own. And once you understand that, then the path from personal computer to iPhone makes a lot more sense because really an iPhone is just a a form of bicycle for your mind that you can keep on your pocket and have on you all day. But he was totally about changing the world, not particularly materialistic at all. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Melissa Schilling. She's the John Herzog Family Professor of Management and Organization at New York University's Stern School of Business, where she focuses on innovation. She's here today with Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. One thing they all had in common was incredible intellect. And it's not just intelligence. I was amazed that they all had remarkable memories. Yeah, they were extremely smart. And most of them, maybe even all of them, were noted for having incredibly exceptional memories. And again, 
the standout here is Nikola Tesla, who had such a powerful photographic memory and a thing called eidetic memory, which is this visual memory, that for most of his youth, they thought he had hallucinations because he would remember things and see them in front of him so clearly it was if they were there. But he later harnessed that photographic memory and became like a human computer-aided design machine. So he could design an invention in his head. He could test it and adjust it, rotate it, fix it, improve it. And then when it was finally done, he would actually commit it to physical form and it would be perfect the very first time he did it. And when I first read about that, you know, at first I was a little skeptical, and then the more I studied his history, the more I became convinced that it had to absolutely be true. But then the most amazing thing happened when I was reading about Elon Musk, because Elon Musk also has this, right? And he talked about how when he was a kid, his visual memory and processing would sort of take over, and he would see something right in front of him as if it were there, and he could refine it and adjust it, and anything engineering or related to physics, he could process so clearly just in his head. It was so much like Tesla. It was astonishing. Now, do these people have what we would call psychological problems today? Um, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because there were patterns that you would attribute to psychopathology that were more clear in some than others, but uh, maybe present in all of them. You notice it first in Tesla because he had lots of it. He clearly had dopamine irregularities because he had lots of signs of mania and lots of signs of obsessive compulsive disorder. He also was extremely sensitive to stimuli. So lights sometimes would hurt his eyes and, and any vibration he would feel very profoundly. Uh, so he tended to work at night and tended to isolate himself. So he had it the strongest. But they all have some signs of mania, I think. They all, first of all, all slept much less. Everybody but Einstein slept much less than the average person. And again, this is this was something I hadn't gone looking for. The only reason I even decided to track down their sleeping hours was because of Nikola Tesla. So Nikola Tesla slept about two hours a night when he slept at all. And then I asked myself, huh, I wonder if any of the other innovators had these unusual sleeping habits. But then it turned out that almost all of them did. So Dean Kamen says he sleeps four hours a night. Edison slept four hours a night. Uh, Elon Musk uh, is probably the highest one in terms. He sleeps six and a half hours a night. Marie Curie slept four to five hours a night. And people estimated Steve Jobs at four to five hours a night. Benjamin Franklin said he slept about four to five hours a night. Now, if you, when they did a population study of the United States, they said the average American sleeps eight and a half hours a night. So you see the scale of the difference there. And then when they did a study of the global population, the developed country of Japan was the was of the developed countries the one that gets the least sleep, and even they get seven and a half hours of sleep a night. So the fact that all these people sleep so much less than the average, it tips you off to start looking for mania because mania is often related to elevated dopamine, but elevated dopamine is also related to creativity. And elevated dopamine can also facilitate working memory and executive control. So now you have one neurotransmitter that can enhance uh, cognition and intelligence. It can enhance creativity. It'll enhance persistence uh, in the form of mania. And it can also enhance uh, confidence and your likelihood of not sleeping very much. Like all those things are connected to dopamine. And if you weren't convinced by that yet... 
Uh, if you go back and do research on schizophrenia and manic depression, you'll find that both of those disorders have been frequently connected to creative genius in some manner. So the earliest studies found that families that yield schizophrenics are also more likely to yield creative geniuses or vice versa. There's also research suggesting that there's a disproportionate number of creative of people who are extremely creative in the in literature, for instance, who are manic depressive. Both of those disorders are linked to dysregulation of dopamine. So there's likely to be a reason that we have intuitively associated genius and madness. They're, they are probably both fundamentally connected to some of the same underlying brain chemistry uh, quirks. I'm going to call it quirks. I didn't. Mean, I wasn't thinking of calling it quirks. <laughs> it's, it's, but... a, it's a word on your mind lately. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. We've done any number of shows about uh, science and sleep and about the importance of knitting things together and how if you don't get the sleep, you get depressed and all this kind mm -hmm. of thing. I keep thinking of these people with these high ideals, this high motivation, these incredible intellects, that the moment at which they almost start to come to, their brain goes, get up and start working. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And they had, um, you know, flurries of ideas would come to them. They would talk about it coming like a cascade or like a waterfall. Uh, Thomas Edison's an interesting one to talk about here because Thomas Edison was not idealistic. He is the only one in my set that it was explicitly not idealistic. And I have to say, I looked for the idealism in him because I saw it in all the others. So I thought, surely there's going to be some sign. And I read and read and read. And I read all the stuff he wrote about himself and everything that anybody wrote about him. And in the end, I ended up finding a quote where he explicitly talks about himself as saying that he's not idealistic, that he doesn't try to fly high in the sky, he sticks pretty low to the ground, he's a practical person, and he leaves that kind of thinking to other people. And so then I wondered, you know, what drove him? You know, he had this same incredible, intense, intrinsic motivation, and he was an incredibly hard worker. In fact, workers around him said things like, Edison can't understand ordinary men. He doesn't understand their physical limits because he has none. And uh, ultimately ended up, ended up reading a bunch of really interesting research on, first of all, need for achievement. So Edison probably had very high need for achievement. He liked to see patents getting racked up uh, much more so, cared more about the patents than the money and than the commercialization prospects of them. He also had naturally high energy output. And it turns out there's a whole line of research. A lot of it's been done on mice because they're much easier research subjects. You can control a lot more things with mice than you can control with people. But this research shows that even closely related individuals can have radically different natural energy expenditure. Uh, it's often called NEAT, which stands for Non-Exercise Activity Thermogenesis. And you'll see it sometimes in the form of fidgeting or rocking or walking around. But some people just have a lot of energy, and and they're not entirely sure why, because they've demonstrated in mice that this can happen even in two individual mice who are super closely related. So uh, I don't think they know exactly what causes it, but I've come to believe that Edison had that. He was you know, like a, a border collie. He was only happy when working, and he worked all the time. And when they, somebody pointed out to him at one point that he had lost about $4 million through being outmaneuvered in General Electric and, you know, his mining venture had basically failed. And so they, so they paused for him and they told him, you know, you lost about $4 million. And he looked at them and he sighed and he said, well, we had a good time doing it, didn't we? <laughs> You did mention that Albert Einstein did sleep. 
Yeah. Now, the tricky thing with capturing data like this is that you're scavenging for information that, you know, it's it's not that all of these innovators at an early age in their life had someone tracking their sleeping history. So you're scavenging for quotes either from them or about them because you want first count information. Uh, and I found this quote from Einstein that he sleeps 10 and a half hours, but it was fairly late in his life. So what we don't know is if he slept that same amount of time in his most active period as a scientist. But it also may just be that some types of innovation and thinking just require more sleep. I need a full night's sleep. And um, I <laughs> I identified with the innovators in, in, in a number of traits, but definitely not the sleeping one. I'm speaking with NYU professor Melissa Schilling. Her book is Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who change the world. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, the highly poisonous Australian brown snake. It may one day save your life. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with NYU professor Melissa Schilling, the author of Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who change the world. She had just pointed out that most of these breakthrough innovators needed only a few hours sleep each night, while Albert Einstein slept over 10. I've had the great good fortune to go to Bern, Switzerland, and to visit the what's called the Einstein House. It's actually a, a, a small apartment uh, where Einstein and his wife and uh, small child lived while he was a patent examiner. And during a an incredible, approximately four-month period, he wrote 
the five definitive papers, which were in, they were integrated, but they were in different areas. The whole yeah. time working full-time, and at those days, full-time wasn't 40 hours. And it, I remember thinking, how does he do it? It had to all come out at once. Yeah. That, in a sense could be part of the sleeping. And I, and I say that because as engineers, the old engineer would come up to you and say, you know, go to bed with a problem and you'll wake up with the solution. <laughs> and they were right, you know. So yeah. Or it, take a shower. Or take Elon a shower. take showers. Yeah. <laughs> there and, you go. And sometimes when Einstein had a problem, he'd go play the violin. You know, Einstein is such an interesting story because he was, of the innovators I studied, he's the one that talks the most about how socially detached he felt from people, but how important he thought it was to being an independent thinker. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't liked by his professors at all in school. They found him disrespectful, and they wouldn't write good letters for him after he graduated, so he couldn't get an academic post. And he suffered a lot of rejection. And then even as a patent clerk, he starts working on these physics ideas when, it, you know, that took, in a way... A little bit of arrogance to say, I'm just going to keep working on my ideas. I don't really care that you haven't accepted me in science. And then all these ideas came in a flurry. They came in this intense four-month period. I mean, he, he worked, I'm not saying all of his ideas came in that four-month period, but there were, as you mentioned, those five major pieces in this four-month period. And then after that, you know, he basically collapsed in a state of exhaustion. And Nikola Tesla describes almost the exact same thing, how the whole AC solution came to him in a flurry, and in, a, in just a few months he had developed all these different electrical systems that harnessed AC electrical power, and, and then he collapsed, and maybe that's when he got his sleep. You talk about what mechanisms could we emulate that might help us, uh, certainly goal-directedness, uh, but also yeah. challenge rules and assumptions. That's important. Yeah. yeah. You know, this uh, social separateness that I mentioned earlier, it's important. It's not just a side thing. It's important because this separateness that the innovators had made them feel like they didn't have to accept the rules around them. They didn't have to accept received wisdom. They could define their own reality, and they could ignore what other people thought of them. That's super important, right? If, if we can learn each day to, to not care that much about what people think of us or about saying the right idea or about having everyone agree with us all the time, that's really important. It actually also highlights why brainstorming groups do not work. And it's kind of funny because as a business school professor, the first time I said brainstorming groups don't work, and I'm not the first person to say that. Psychologists have studied that for years and said that. But when I said it to my department, people stared at me like I had just said something horrible, like I just, just a <laughs> horror-inspiring thing to say. But the thing is, groups bring people to consensus. That's what they do. You know, people make concessions, and they oftentimes only contribute ideas that they think other people will like or, or will share, and they won't put out their craziest ideas because they don't want to be judged negatively. And also, when somebody else is talking, it's difficult for you to vocalize your idea. It's difficult for you to even think about your idea. So groups can really ruin creativity. If, if you want people to come up with breakthrough ideas, you have to let them work alone first. You know, you want people, and, and this is also true with kids. You need them, they need to have time to think and write and ponder what they believe and how the world works because that's what will enable them to get a sense of self that's uncontaminated by what other people think, right? Well, and to form their own ideas and to become original thinkers. Well, this does remind me, I, when my, my boys were 
kids. I was the president of the grade school parent association one year, and I was just chagrined. I came in in January to have that first meeting, and the talk was, what have you signed your kids up for? for summer and oh my goodness there's barely anything left and they turned to me and they finally said what are you doing and I said we're doing absolutely nothing I'm not signing them up for anything I don't care if they don't know how to swim I don't care if they no we're doing we'll go on a little vacation here and there but I don't and I don't know what that will be they're not doing anything they have to get up in the morning and figure it out I tell you it was shockwaves shockwaves that was insightful of you (laughs) it was lucky yeah you know I'm a parent, and I see a lot of parents around me are scheduling the heck out of their kids. You know, they want them to be in soccer, and they want them to do glee club, and they need to do all these things to develop social skills and take a foreign language and play an instrument. But kids need downtime, right? And and I don't mean like screen time where they're relaxing watching YouTube videos because that's mentally passive. Then you're reacting to somebody else's uh, creativity and you know that's the same production blocking that you get in brainstorming teams. So you don't you don't want them staring at a device. You want them to actually you know maybe doodle on a piece of paper and maybe read things that they're interested in and figure out what they're interested in. That's super important. Okay. Besides Marie Curie, where are the women? Yeah. You know, um, I feel like an apologist for this, but I uh, I'm a research professor and I do empirical research. That's my whole career has been empirical research. So when I started this project, the first thing I did was try to find a way of selecting the cases that took me out of the process. Because any good researcher knows that if you're picking out the cases, you're introducing bias, even if you don't realize it. You know, you might subconsciously pick out people who you think are weird or interesting or are going to illustrate some theme. So the first thing I did was set out criteria that would take me out of the process. And my criteria were that they had to be people who showed up on multiple most famous inventors or innovators list, because I wanted them to be people that were widely acknowledged as important. They had to have multiple uh, breakthrough innovations. So they had to be noted on these lists for multiple things, not just one big thing. We didn't want any one-hit wonders. They had to be people about whom multiple biographies had been written because I wanted to have deep, rich sources of knowledge but to not be unduly influenced by one person's perspective. And the last thing they had to have was lots of first-person accounts, so personal letters, quotes, videos, anything where the innovator themselves is speaking or the innovator's direct friends or family are speaking so that we could uh, let them speak for themselves, essentially. And I went through that process, and what I ended up with was Marie Curie and a whole lot of white men. And I thought, oh, (laughs) no, I'm going to be roasted for this. And at first, I considered going into the lists of, you know, there's a great book on African-American inventors, and there are plenty of books on women inventors. But I couldn't legitimately do that as a researcher because it would have introduced bias into the process. So what I did instead was tried to really understand why, why this set ended up looking the way it did. And I also studied a few other women just to get a sense if it would help me understand that phenomenon. So I studied Grace, Grace Hopper, for instance. And in the end, it was actually super clear because, you know, to get on these lists of most famous innovators with multiple in- innovations, uh, you you you're looking at a pretty wide swath of time, right? So my earliest innovator on my list is Benjamin Franklin. And so you've got, you know, 300 years or so of people that are being considered. In that 300 years, 
the number of years when a woman or a person of color could have had access to education and science is really small. So that's a sampling disadvantage, right? So women and people of color just didn't have access the way that that these other people did. And uh, and then the other problem, I, sh- I, it's, I feel bad saying problem a little bit, but the other issue is that even for Marie Curie, to be a mother and to be a serial breakthrough innovator imposed some very heavy trade-offs and some very dear costs that I had to think really hard about whether I would have been willing to make the same choice she did. So Marie Curie and Pierre Curie were both intensely focused on science, uh, fairly detached from the world. They both liked to live isolated in a, in a shack, and they referred to their own anti-natural existence. So they had two daughters and they basically gave those daughters up to P- Pierre's father to raise. So Pierre's father, Marie Curie's father-in-law, did most of the raising of the children so that Marie Curie could focus on science. And Eve Curie ended up writing a biography about her mother. And in this biography, you hear the love and the adoration and the respect, but you also hear the sadness and the longing and the pining for the attention of her mother that she didn't get. And I think that was an incredibly difficult choice that Marie Curie made. And I think it's a choice that not very many women uh, maybe could have made or would have even wanted to make. You know, Grace Hopper didn't end up having any children. Several of the innovators, Dean Kamen also never married or had children. Nikola Tesla never married or had children. Uh, It's probably pretty hard to be single-mindedly focused on innovation and to be a good parent at the same time because by definition... Uh, single-minded means that you're not giving part of your mind, a significant part of your mind, to your kids. And I think a lot of people have made the choice, a lot of potential women innovators out there made the choice that they couldn't be single-mindedly focused on innovation. Now, all that said, I think some things are changing. So access to education and science, of course, is changing fast. And I think there are a lot of women innovators out there whose stories just haven't been told yet. Uh, people don't tend to write biographies about you until they think they know how the story's going to end. So <laughs> there are plenty of people out there that we're going to see stories written about, but that material just wasn't available to me when I did my project. I don't know about the kid thing. I think the I think the kid thing is difficult to wrestle with because I know that even in my own life, I have really obsessive tendencies. I could very easily get sucked into a problem and study night and day, night and day, all night long. But once I had kids, I knew I didn't have that choice anymore because part of my mind has to belong to my kids. And you wanted to have kids. Yeah, I wanted to have kids. And so at 5 p.m., I have to shut it down and I have to find a way to wrangle my brain back around to things like homework and, you know, paying attention to what they did at school that day. And sometimes it's hard to do that. But um, I, you know, I had to make that choice. Well, it's very challenging to study this. I mean, hats off to you on that, because you don't know how much of this is particular constructs of the brain, how much is nature versus nurture, and just general circumstance. These people were able to, if if I collect them together, to pierce the paradigm of what the entire world believed was what was so and what was going to be so. That takes tremendous strength without running around telling people that this is the strength you have. They just had it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that phrase, pierce the paradigm. 
Um, these were people for whom a bunch of really important traits came together simultaneously, like intelligence and drive and idealism and self-efficacy and high energy. And all, all those things came together also at some sort of place in time where they had access to the resources they would need to fulfill their dream. Uh, well, first of all, let's talk about timing for a second. So timing definitely played a role. I could have done the whole book just on innovators who emerged during the IT revolution, for instance. And, you know, obviously I chose not to do that. But there are particular periods in time that are more uh, fertile for breakthrough innovation. And you'll see a bunch of innovators emerge during that time. That tells you right there that there is a bunch of innovators who are in other times, but the environment just isn't as fertile, right? Because the people are the same, but the timing is different. So there are people that we just didn't see because there wasn't some particular breakthrough to be had during that time. You know, both Edison and Tesla were during the time of electrification. Marie Curie started studying science right after Röntgen and, and uh, Becquerel had discovered these mysterious rays, and so she ends up working on radioactivity. So timing was super important. But th I'd say the thing I was going to mention that was maybe surprising to me is that in business schools, we focus a lot on people having access to capital and, and good social networks, right? So we spend a lot of time trying to make sure there's venture capitalists and angel investors and seed money and grant money from the government because everybody seems to think that the bottleneck is money. But none of the innovators I studied supported that. Like, they all started with almost no money. Uh, it's, it was amazing how consistent it was. They were all basically dead broke when they started, and money was not the bottleneck. The bottleneck for them was getting access to either expertise or technological resources that they needed to enact their ideas. So, you know, Jobs needed Steve Wozniak in the beginning, and then later on needed John Ivey to achieve a lot of his goals. Marie Curie absolutely needed Pierre Curie because Pierre Curie invented the electrometer that enabled her to measure the currents, that enabled her to prove she had discovered radium. So without Pierre, Marie couldn't have made those discoveries. Now, the discoveries were hers, absolutely. She was the driven, dynamo, science-obsessed person uh, in that relationship, although he was also very science-focused. But, but without that tool, she wouldn't have been able to make the discovery that she made. You know, when I was reading Marie Curie's background, I suddenly thought of the background of Leonardo da Vinci with the with the recent information that was brought to light in Walter Isaacson's uh, book about Leonardo's mother and the fact that he was illegitimate and so he couldn't have the formal education, and yet he had a lot of support. I mean, it was like, oh, this looks the same. There wasn't the yeah. formal education of the period, but there was a tremendous nurturance to let these things come forward. So right. somehow all these things come together, and yet yeah. it could just be if the right element in circumstance wasn't there, you wouldn't have made it. You know, Leonardo da Vinci is someone that I would have really liked to have been able to include, but there were no, I didn't have enough firsthand account material on him to include him. He was too far back in time. But when I was reading about him, the thing that was most amazing is that he was a man out of his own time. Like if he had been born a couple of centuries later, so many of his ideas could have been enacted because we would have had the metallurgical resources to enact them. Like, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but yes. his ideas were just so ahead of his time that if he had been born later, we would have seen amazing things. I mean, we already saw amazing things from Leonardo da Vinci, but we would have seen even more amazing things from him. But, you know, something else you said there I want to I want to bring back up. Um, it was astonishing to me how many of these people 
had a lot less formal education than you would expect. And we've kind of heard that story before, but, you know, after studying them really closely, I think I understand it better. And and just to highlight that, you know, Dean Kamen, who's invented the world's first portable drug infusion pump, which totally revolutionized diabetes care, and the world's first portable dialysis machine and the iBot mobility wheelchair. He's done all these medical inventions. He has no medical training at all. In fact, he didn't technically graduate from high school, and he didn't graduate from undergraduate college. Uh, so... He's just a great example of one of these people who didn't have as much formal education as you would have expected. And even the ones that did have formal education, a lot of them resisted the structure of formal education. They rebelled against it. Or, you know, Elon Musk says he never went to class. He just showed up and took the exams. Sergey Brin actually says the exact same thing. You, when you say that, at first, people are inclined to think, see, education doesn't matter. I don't need education. Education didn't help these people become successful. But that's exactly wrong because the truth is they were incredibly invested in education, but they had to consume it and do it in their own pace and their own terms and their own format. So they were voracious readers, like incessant, insatiable readers, and they wanted to be able to study whatever they wanted to be able to study and when they wanted to be able to study it. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was astonishing how important books were to all of them. I mean, the whole process of studying these innovators made me realize that books are like the unsung hero of our world. There's, you know, books really are were the key to so many of these people's lives and careers. With this insatiable reading, what I see is that it's not just, well, I read Tom Sawyer, and then I read the encyclopedia, and then I read this book. Every time they take something in, they attach it to everything else. We don't know with these remarkable intellects what they're building. We can't even yeah. begin to imagine. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. You know, when I first presented this work several years ago, some of my early research from the work there were some people in the crowd who didn't really know Elon Musk's whole past, and they associated him only with Tesla. And he has a fair number of haters, which is a, a disorienting phenomenon. Uh, you know, that people seem to resent him and his success for some reason. But uh, some people said to me, oh, he's not really an innovator. How can you call him an innovator? He just created a new business model for automobiles and took other people's technologies. I was just gobsmacked by that comment because when you really read his story, I mean, this is a man who taught himself rocket science because NASA wasn't going to Mars, right? He heard that NASA wasn't going to Mars and he thought, well, then I'll just have to do it myself. And he took out rocketry science textbooks and studied them intensely and actually designed his own prototype of a reusable rocket with spreadsheets about all the cost functions and just blew everyone around him away. And anybody who works at space SpaceX will say he knows rocket science down to the atom. You know, he's not just writing on other people's expertise to enact his ideas. So the capacity of someone to teach themselves something when they have a problem they're trying to solve, it's just magical, right? It's just so inspiring, I think. Well, speaking of magical, if you just saw those two boosters in sync oh, yeah. come down and land, it's like... We've never seen anything like that before. And wasn't NASA yeah. supposed to do that? I mean, I don't, I don't know how much you know about that story, but when Elon Musk said he was going to invent reusable rockets, the whole space industry, all the industry stalwarts said, nope, it's not possible. We've tried. We've spent 50 years trying to do it. It cannot be done. And, you know, he just shrugged his shoulders and said, I think I can do it. And he did it. <laughs> you know, he must have felt... Uh, 
pretty vindicated the other day. I think he was working on the next thing when they landed. That's fine. I got other stuff brewing. That's, <laughs> That's probably <laughs> very right. busy. Very busy. Melissa, it's been a pleasure. Uh, please come back. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. Okay. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. My guest today is NYU professor Melissa Schilling. The book is Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. It's published by Public Affairs. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health. Reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, Dr. Chris Smith from Cusera, a startup in Brisbane, Australia. Cusera is working on a product which coagulates blood, yet it's based on snake venom. I've always thought that snake venom caused your blood to flow more freely. In Australia, you have snakes. They don't often get an opportunity to kill their prey, and when they do, they need to stop it very fast. And so if you can coagulate your prey and get them to freeze and you get plenty of time to eat them, then that's how you'll be successful. So Australian snakes often coagulate rather than anticoagulate blood. So the whole idea is to put that venom in there, almost get you to freeze up like a cold day with your old car. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They do lots of things. Uh, they also lyse your red blood cells. They do lots of things to try and stop you instantly. Now, what does lyse your red blood oh, cells mean? Yeah, so sorry. That's, uh, that's to basically explode them, blow them up, stop Ooh. them from being able to deliver the oxygen that they're there to do. So these are very poisonous snakes. Yeah, Australia in particular is uh, proud to say that it has most of the most venomous snakes and spiders uh, on the planet. And that's why at the University of Queensland, where this technology was developed, there is years and years of expertise in understanding snake venoms. So at some point, you figured out that being able to coagulate blood was actually positive. Well, I can tell you the story because it's a, it's a very entertaining story. And it's a, a pathologist who's based uh, in Queensland was riding his bicycle to work one day. It was a lovely hot day. And as he was extremely hot, riding bike very fast, his heart was pumping quickly. And he rounded the corner and saw an Australian brown snake. And as he went past the snake, it tried to strike him and it just missed his leg. And as he continued to ride to work, he thought, I wonder what would have happened if it had actually got me. And he thought, given that his... uh, he was working very hard and his blood was running very fast. That He probably would have been dead within a couple of minutes. And when he was later at work and he was trying to take some patient's blood and work out what was wrong with them, and he was getting a lot of pressure from his boss to say, we need those results quick. This patient is in desperate need uh, of intervention. He said, if only I could coagulate the blood quicker. And it was at that moment he thought to himself, well, actually... I have this brown snake here. I've got that brown snake. And so he started a a five-year quest to really understand that. And using the expertise within Australia, he was able to say, not just take venom, but take the actual crucial part of the venom and make it into a product. So if you're doing a blood test, you need the blood to coagulate? That's right. There's a, it's called a serum analysis, a serum tube. It's the clear part of your blood. Crucial to being able to do that is you've got to get rid of all the clotting factors, the things that make your blood clot. Because if they're still in your blood sample when you go and get a test, they get caught in the machine, the robots start breaking down, it takes a long time, 
and you don't get the results, the quality of the results that you need. And, you, and that could lead to misinterpretation of results. You're getting the wrong medicine. So it's crucial that you coagulate the blood, you get a high quality sample, but it's also crucial that you do it fast. You need to get your blood test results quickly. If you've had a heart attack, you don't want someone to say, well, let me just tell you in 45 minutes or in an hour, you want it now. And that's the key. And that's, we talk about this all the time in the industry, it's called turnaround time. Okay. And when the doctor clinician sends their sample to get read, they want to know what's wrong with their patient. They want it back quick in a very fast turnaround time. So you coagulate the red part so that the clear part comes out? That's right. So you coagulate the, the cells, yeah, and it's uh, actually the fibrinogen, which is in our uh, serum. And fibrinogen is part of the clotting factors that make you make a scar or a scab or something that you'd see. This healing process is always going on inside you, and it's, uh, it's very well controlled, and it's an essential part of our life. Uh, but they do interfere with how we analyze our bloods when you have to go and get tested. Now, there are some people that intentionally thin their blood. They may have a, yeah. uh, a pacemaker or they may have some other problems going on. So when they get a blood test, do they naturally have a more difficult problem? They absolutely do. Um, some of those patients, it's very, very common now for people to be on blood thinners in the, in the community, but also when you're in hospital as well. It, it helps you avoid deep vein thrombosis. You know, DVT is something that we all know about nowadays. If you're having a heart attack, the first thing they'll do is give you a blood thinner. If you're having a stroke, you'll get a blood thinner. So in lots of settings, you'll be in, you will be on a blood thinner of some sort. In those situations, sometimes we can never clot your blood. And there's nothing we can do about that until we came along with this new product. Snakes, in particular, have developed a way of clotting blood that avoids all of those things. So we've got a solution here for the patients, which means we won't have to worry about that anymore. Instead of waiting for 40 minutes, an hour, or never getting the results, uh, we'll actually have a product that can do it in, in usually under five minutes. And you don't have to give this to the patient. You're actually lining tubes, test tubes, that you would draw the blood into? That's right. So that from a patient perspective, uh, all they'll know is that they've they got some blood taken perfectly normally, and instead of waiting hours, they get their results back very, very fast. You're doing this work in Australia. How long until it's on the market? Well, it, very importantly, with life-saving products like this, it's highly regulated, as you would imagine. So the American FDA regulates blood tubes. The results are crucial for people's health. And so we're going through that process now. The the company will certainly be having products here in the US and across the globe. We think this is a product that can make a difference to human health globally. We can not only reduce the time, but it can reduce the cost. It means less patients will be getting the wrong medicines. You know? And so for that reason, we're going to try and do everything we can to launch this across the planet. Dr. Chris Smith is the director of Qsera in Brisbane, Australia. To be fair, making a new product go global is not a predictable proposition. Current information is available at q-sara.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.